0: Good morning sinners. How are we today? Yeah good, a little wet. Do you appreciate the umbrellas today? It's for some of you who got people walked from your cars. Yeah good, good, good. It's good to be back in front of you again if you're a guest here today. What we do is we pick a book of the Bible and we walk through it and we are walking through, continuing through the book of Mark and uh, for me it was good to sit back to watch Piper uh, share on uh, our celebration of motherhood to have my brother come in from victoria and share and then again last weekend to have mike and then of course people say look at you only work one hour a week how come you're not preaching so i'm here in front of you again today so and next week i got another guest coming in anyway it's good it's good to be here so open up your bibles your ipads your iphones your eyelids especially and let's go to the book of mark chapter 2 starting at verse 13 and I want to start off this morning asking you a question are you ready for the question who do you think you are hmm or, or maybe you've heard the question phrased this way don't you know who I am this is the one I use all the time personally see there's there's actually a universal problem that doesn't seem to escape any of us. And this problem is actually the problem of self-righteousness. And self-righteousness seems to be no respecter of persons. It can have that buttoned theological arrogance, maybe some of you are familiar with this, of coming across like, I know more than you. And if you were as theological as I am, you would be as spiritual as I am. Or um, it could take the form of looking down on somebody who doesn't appear to be as spiritually mature as you are. It could take the form of a parent who says something like this to their child. I can't believe that you would do such a thing. Why in my day? You remember those words? I would never thought of doing such a thing. And of course, essentially what we're saying to our child is, is that your problem is that you're not nearly as righteous as I am. So self-righteousness is no respecter of persons. One person said this, Let us beware of self-righteousness. Open sin kills thousands of souls, but self-righteousness kills its tens of thousands. Think about that for a moment. So here, here are a couple of other questions on a rainy Sunday. How does your view of yourself... Now think about this. How does the view of yourself affect the way you think about your need for God and His grace? How does the view of yourself affect the way you think about your need for God and His grace? Or how does the way you think about yourself shape the way you think about and respond to others who are around you? So you are, whether you realize it or not, are in a constant. We all are. We're in this constant daily habit of self-assessment and self-evaluation. We're always examining ourselves. In other words, there's even a ritual for me prior to going up before people that I go through. I have to examine my exterior Do I look okay? Do I pass? Because I don't have this gifting of matching clothes properly. I have to look to the one who tells me and gives me the thumbs up. Pastoral confession. Number one thing that you always do before you go on stage is a fly check. It is, we go through an assessment. Is my hair okay? Do I have toothpaste? Do I have, my, am I shaved properly? We all do this. Then we start assessing ourselves when we're talking with other people. Is my breath bad? Thank goodness for masks, right? I haven't had to chew gum for a long time, but it, it's, but now we're more self-aware. We become very self-aware, engaging people. Uh, I know I have a problem of always looking past people. Uh, I see movement, my ADD kicks in, I'm going on, my wife says, look in people's eyes. Self-assessment, am I looking, am I concentrating, am I listening, am I hearing, two different things. And we have this incessant internal conversation that is always going on in our heads 24 seven. And again, it's not a bad thing because it can actually lead us to good places. Maybe uh, because um, maybe we need to learn to confess some more and be aware of our sinness and um, be able to come to a place of repentance. But it can also be a very dangerous thing because we are all too skilled at giving ourselves arguments for our own righteousness. We're too skilled in being able to recast our wrong in a way that is now more acceptable to our conscience. In other words, we want to feel better about ourselves. We're too skilled at comparing ourselves when you think about it to other people and assessing ourselves as somehow, some way, I've arrived. Maybe you haven't, but I have. And we're too comfortable and quiet, but deadly when it comes to the condemnation of people around us who seem so messed up. And this is actually the lead-up to where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 2. Jesus is still in Capernaum. He goes out again to the Sea of Galilee, similar to Mark chapter 1 verse 16, where we see Jesus passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. Only this time, Jesus isn't walking alone. As a matter of fact, we're told that there's this large crowd that's coming to him, Uh, and and he's teaching them. So he's he's now a pretty busy guy, and we see this familiar passage um, uh, or pattern throughout the passages in in Mark. Jesus, again, he's withdrawing from the crowd. He's got to recharge. He's trying to get away uh, to the shores of Galilee, but uh, as it always happens, the crowds are out there, and they're looking for him, and Jesus has become this very popular teacher, miracle worker, and exorcist only in the second chapter of Mark. And now in this passage, and Mike looked at it last week, we saw that Jesus had begun to proclaim that people's sins are forgiven, alongside miraculous healings, leading all the people to say, we've never seen anything like this before. And they're now attracted, but not everybody is thrilled that Jesus has this rise in popularity. The scribes, the Pharisees, they, they're watching the crowd celebrate Jesus, but they're growing more and more apprehensive. They are not liking what they see. They've already accused Jesus of blasphemy last week, but they were publicly then rebuked by Jesus right after that. It was kind of like they got their hands slapped publicly. And yet here the whole town is excitingly following Jesus. And it's safe to assume that the religious leaders are highly suspicious of, if not already antagonistic, towards this wonder-working rabbi from Nazareth. Who is this guy? And Jesus doesn't go out of his way to alleviate any of the suspicions. As a matter of fact, he makes problems worse by linking arms with some shady characters. So pick it up here in verse 14, chapter 2, and it says, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now the Jesus... Re- English is my second language, so if I stutter, you'll forgive me. The region where Jesus is walking is ruled by a guy named Herod Antipas. Now literally has one or more toll booths where people are coming into the region. They're coming into Galilee. They're actually coming into another place from Herod Philip's territory. It's called the Decapolis is the word. And again, they would have to pay a toll when you're coming into the highways, um, and you would have to pay a toll to come into the Galilee region. And it's at one of these toll booths that Jesus encounters Levi. Levi, a tax collector, sitting at his post. What we do know is that Levi is the same guy called Matthew in Luke chapter 5. Matthew is the Greek, Levi is the Hebrew. Now, we know that tax collectors work for the government. (laughs) And if you work for CRA, just don't tell anybody. So the tax collectors here, they work for the Roman government, collecting various taxes and tools, and the Jewish people think of them as sinners in the highest order. And it's easy for tax collectors now to inflate the amounts owed and to pocket the difference. Rome still gets their money, but they get a little bit more. And so people believe these tax collectors, just by nature of their job, are guilty of extortion. And as agents of the Roman government, tax collectors are part of a system that actually keeps Israel into subjugation. They're slaves. And so these tax collectors also come into frequent contact with Gentiles. Now this is a religious issue. And so if they're Jewish and they have contact with the, frequent contact with Gentiles, they are now ritually unclean. And so because of all of this, the Jews don't feel it necessary To deal honestly with tax collectors. Because they're not welcome in the temple. And they're also guilty of being dishonest. And so this is the tension that is going on. Now Jesus sees Levi sitting at his tax collecting booth. And he says to Levi, he goes, follow me. And this is remarkable. And it's a remarkable act that will offend every patriotic Jew. So remember, Jesus is being followed by a bunch of people. He sees a hated tax collector. He says, follow me. And however, it's in keeping with the way that Jesus treats marginal people, right? The lepers, women, widows, beggars, sinners of every stripe. But it's mind-blowing when you think about it, that when Jesus says, follow me, are you ready for this? He did. Levi gets up from his booth and he follows Jesus. Now, Mark doesn't provide a whole lot of detail here, but there's something very powerful about this moment when Jesus looks at this despicable, this immoral man who literally stands for everything that's opposite of what Jesus came to do and to produce, and Jesus looks at him and he actually sees potential in this tax collect. This man whose very lifestyle gave you no hint that he had any spiritual interest at all, whatsoever. Jesus is about to call Levi away from uh, everything that has excited him and given him life, if you want to put it that way. We would expect Levi to look at Jesus after the, the invite and he'd go kind of like, yeah, right, me follow you, the Messiah, are you out of your mind? But He does. He does. And do you know why? I think it's grace. I think without question Levi would have heard all the stories about Jesus spreading like wildfire in the area, but grace gives Levi the ability to respond in that moment. Grace gives Levi uh, open eyes to see who Jesus is. Grace moves into his heart. Grace begins to change his thinking. Grace changes his desires. And what does he do? He gets up and he follows after Jesus. And what Jesus sees is the radical, transforming, life-altering, God-glorifying potential of grace. Something's at work here. And you need no more argument in all of Scripture for the power and the importance of grace than the calling of Levi. This hated guy. And I think if I could speak for you, and I'm going to do that, I think the reason that we're all surprised at the calling of people like Levi is because we mistakenly think that we're different. We think we're better. We mistakenly think We're better than him. Let that sink a little bit. Do you notice that Levi doesn't ask to be included or forgiven? There's no mention of repentance, although we can assume that it is a turning point, obviously, in Levi's life. For him to actually go and abandon his tax office to follow Jesus is an act almost too remarkable as Jesus calling it, it really makes no sense. And again, tax collectors are people who are outsiders of the general population. And you can be very sure that the only people they socialize with are each other and probably the Roman masters as well. They're well-to-do financially. They're rich people. They have the backing of Rome. They have the backing of soldiers. But Levi walks away from everything that he has known to be decisively concrete No different than as the first four disciples who were called by Jesus that Piper talked about a couple of weeks back. But here's a thought. Our souls ache for purpose. And Jesus gives us something worth living for, even worth dying for. Levi, follow me. Gets up. And in typical Jesus fashion, let's eat. So where do we go? Look at the scripture. We find ourselves in Levi's house. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this... (laughs) You got like this. Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I think, you know, we, we tend to look at the scribes and Pharisees in Scripture, we tend to think badly of them all the time because they oppose Jesus. But there's something that you have to keep in mind when we're reading the Scriptures, however, is that they were devout people. They were devout men dedicated in their understanding of honoring God by keeping, faithfully keeping, the Jewish law. However, they made two mistakes. First, they became very prideful. And again, pride is a spirit that quickly becomes an obstacle in our spiritual growth. And second, they studied the law in such fine detail that they often got lost in the minutia and found themselves distracted from the law's main purpose. Hence, we have 613 different little commands, when really it shouldn't be that tight. We can probably say they no longer see the forest for the trees. But now the scribes and the Pharisees do not confront Jesus directly because he schooled them already last week. Instead, they address his disciples. And why is it such a big deal that Jesus is eating with these folks? What's going on? And again, we have to understand the importance of hospitality was very significant in the culture that we see here. One commentator said this, eating with somebody had special connotations. It was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. In short, sharing a table meant sharing life. I love that. And so therefore, the guests are selected very carefully when you think about it especially in Middle Eastern context. So, sitting around a table implies friendship, and to some, it implies approval. On the other hand, the question that the scribes and Pharisees are asking has to be one of the most arrogant questions in Scripture. Because the only way that you can ask that question, why does he eat with those sinners is if you come to the conclusion that you're not one so does Jesus approve of tax collectors and sinners does he endorse their behavior Has he no concern for a thing that we call holiness? Does he care nothing about Jewish law? Doesn't he understand the bad example he is setting by associating with these people, these sinners? Won't his actions contribute to the moral decay of the nation? All these concerns are all wrapped up in the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, again, we need to hear this. The tax collectors are bad dudes. They're bad people. They're despised people. You know, if lepers were despised for their diseases, these people are despised all the more. These guys were Jews who worked for the Roman government. They handed out an exorbitant tax that essentially broke the back of the economy, and they took a good portion of that for themselves. They were political turncoats. They were thieves. They were known for their lawlessness. They were known for their immorality. And as a group of people, tax collectors, like I said, were excommunicated from the synagogue. They, they were known to be so corrupt that they weren't even allowed to testify in the court of law. So it's only natural that Levi would invite tax collectors and sinners to his table because they are his only friends. They are the only ones who would accept his invitation. So let's put the story in modern times. Let's say that Levi is a producer of a porn company who associates himself with other people in the adult film industry. And he throws a party and he invites these people as well as some gang members and some drug dealers and some drug addicts because those are the only people will accept the invitation and I don't think that my example is very far off today and for some respect the same moral revulsion that some would feel about associating ourselves with a person or people like that would have been what most Jews would have felt by associating with tax collectors and sinners you'd think that Jesus would be the ultimate party killer (laughs) Jesus, come to our party. Who's that guy sitting in the corner? That's Jesus. Oh, he's a party killer. I think the bigger question is, why would Jesus grace such a gathering with his presence? And I don't know if this shocks you or not, but Jesus is actually quite comfortable in this party. He's quite comfortable with these people around him. And these are the people he came for, you know, you don't see Jesus saying, you know, Levi, the invitation's nice, but I got a reputation to protect. You don't really expect that I'm going to hang out with those people, do you? No, 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 there's none of those. But Jesus is actually quite willing to hang out with those people. And before him is the need that brought Jesus to earth, those people. And it will be the one thing that actually drives them to the cross. And here we are, only in the second chapter of Mark. He's already recounted several instances where Jesus acted the way uh, the Pharisees would have regarded it as offensive. He healed people on the Sabbath. He touched a leper. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Those actions challenged the religious status quo. They couldn't believe what they were seeing and hearing. And ironically, in our culture and in ourselves, we're always tempted, think about it, we are tempted to tame Jesus to remove any offense from Christianity, to appease the culture around us. We want to make Christianity compatible with the social norms. And there is a a, a trend to make the church a place where people can come and just be comforted rather than being comforted and challenged. It used to be that the church would preach the truth of Scripture and those who were offended was the unsaved world. Now if you preach the truth of Scripture, you offend people sitting right in the room who identify themselves as followers of Jesus. There have been times where I've preached a message and somebody would come up to me and say that took guts. One does it require courage to declare the truth of Scripture to the church? There's a shift that's taking place in our culture. We're forgetting that the purpose of the church is to change the world. Read the book of Acts. The unfortunate thing is that many are allowing the world to change the church, and in doing so, we are bending it back into the world. We're actually blending it back into the world and making the church ineffective and powerless. Martin Luther rightly warned that there is a clear and present danger that the devil may take away from us the pure doctrine of faith and may substitute it for the doctrines, now hear what he says, of works and human traditions. The good news of the cross and resurrection must be preached. It must be believed. It must be lived out. Otherwise, it will be lost. And the church, that's you and me. The church's greatest danger is not the anti gospel outside of the church. The church's greatest danger is the counterfeit gospel we're finding growing inside the church. Paul addressed it when he talked about these guys called Judaizers in the New Testament. They didn't walk around the city in Antioch wearing their t-shirts that said, hey, hug me, I'm a false apostle. No, no, what made them so dangerous was that they knew how to talk the way the Christians talk. They knew how to use all the right terminology. They got they talked about how they got saved. They told people to trust in Christ. Then they presented the gospel, only they did not have the gospel after all. They had something else. It sounded nice, but it wasn't the gospel. And I think we should expect, therefore, that m- the most serious threat to the one true gospel, the gospel of Jesus, is something that is also called the gospel, The most dangerous teachers are the ones who preach a different Christ but still call him Jesus. I'm sorry, I digress. But let's get back to our text. Jesus overhears the conversation. He responds that the sick need a doctor. That he came not for the righteous but for the sinners. Jesus came to serve those who need him. And those include first and foremost sinners. And so we have to think about this. Jesus didn't eat with sinners. Sorry, if he didn't eat with sinners, he would be eating alone because there are only in this very moment two kinds of people in the house, Jesus and sinners. Now, of course, we're all sinners. But the fact is that some of us count ourselves as righteous and are therefore unlikely to recognize our need of Jesus. And that's the irrationality of self-righteousness. And I think that's a shocking aspect of self-righteousness. Is that sometimes we're in utter blindness. And in our story, utter blindness that these men can actually say this. You know, when we think of sinners, we can actually, if I could put it this way, we can actually have three classes of sinners. You know, there are, there are people out there, sinners. And again, that's not a... a a wonderful word that we like to use in church, right? It makes us feel uncomfortable. But yet it's in Scripture. Anyway, there are those who are sinners but don't have sin in their minds as a category. They, they're utterly blind to their sin. In other words, the concept of sin isn't even in the wheelhouse. They're just people living life that don't know Jesus. They have a sense of right or wrong, but you know, sin, it's just not in their wheelhouse. Second class of sinners are, are what I would call the self-righteous, arrogant, Denying the need of any God-sinners. These are those who are, could be very vocal, but, you know, have a concept of what sin and God is all about, but just deny. The third class are those who see themselves as righteous and in no more need of God. I'm good. Like Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners... You think about it this way, when you're feeling healthy, you don't say to your friend, you don't say, you know, I think I'm, I think I need to go see a doctor because I'm feeling really good right now. We don't say that. But Jesus is saying something interesting. He's saying, my message is a message of hope to sinners. I came to call sinners. And so Jesus in this moment is giving us a picture of the zeal for his ministry He sits with the despised, he sits with the rejected and the seemingly spiritually hopeless people because that's exactly what he came to do. And he's there because he understands that he is their only hope and those who acknowledge their sin, those who are self-aware of their sin, they're having those conversations, I'm not worthy to be in the presence of this individual, are more likely to welcome his ministry. And as we assess the story, we need to remember that we live in a similar similar cultural ethos where almost anything goes kind of world where people reject the idea of sin and the need for repentance. That's our world. And yet we still need to welcome sinners, but we also need to encourage them to Uh, experience rebirth and to practice spiritual disciplines and to grow in the knowledge and the understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And ironically, today, we are less likely to be critical of sinners than other Christians, right? The charismatic or the non-charismatics, the liberals, the conservatives, that's where the war is going on. And unfortunately, we reserve our most potent venom for our brothers and sisters who see things somewhat differently than we do. And this struggle is literally a day-by-day battle in our hearts because the true gospel of complete and total reliance upon Jesus is always trying to be replaced by a different gospel. That's the war that's going on within us this gospel of self-congratulatory self-righteousness. And I'd like to think that it doesn't exist inside of me, but let's be honest, it does. Maybe that exists in your prickliness when somebody comes to you to point out perhaps a wrong in you. Ooh. And you can feel your inner lawyer being activated. Right. And you're already, you know, before you speak, you're rising to your defense, and you're quick to let that person know that you're not the only sinner in this room. Maybe that exists also in a parental impatience when you can't believe what your child would do. You ever been there, parents? Well, of course you can. You're a sinner too. <laughs> they get it from you. Just saying. And in case you haven't realized this, parents are much more like your child than unlike your child. Just throwing that out there. Maybe it exists in that condemning heart towards people outside of this building. People who maybe don't know who the Lord is. Maybe it's that spirit of criticism towards fellow believers who don't seem to get their theology the way that you do or whose lives don't seem to be as ordered as how your life is. And I think this is the clear and present danger. And we see this danger in this passage because this was the religion of the Pharisees and the religion of the Pharisees can't help but collide with the gospel of the kingdom. And see, my prayer as pastors is that God would help us to have a biblically accurate view of ourselves and not a view of ourselves that causes us to beat ourselves up. Because if you're beating yourself up because you feel that you're not worthy, you're still holding on to some aspect of self-righteousness. You you still want to be independently righteous. So my prayer, my prayer for us is actually that God would fill us with a profound sense of need that runs uh, us to the cross why to find forgiveness and, and there to worship uh, our Savior our Redeemer whose grace is our hope is our peace is our strength his spirit is our power to go and reach the world around us you continue on in the story it's quite interesting John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting So here's the irony of the story that follows directly after the feast in the house of Levi. You know, what are the Pharisees doing while Jesus and his disciples are enjoying a good meal? (laughs) They're having barbecue, they're having shish kebab, there's lamb, there's chicken, that's all happening there. They're enjoying this good meal while these other guys are fasting. It's beautiful. And really, in the Old Testament, the only fasting that was required was actually once a year. It was on the Day of Atonement. You can find that in Leviticus. But by the time of Jesus, many religious renewal movements began. A practice of regular fasting to express their contrition over sin, pleading... For God to restore Israel, fasting—if you didn't know—involves the abstinence of food and, in some kinds, even liquid or drink for a period of time. And some would do it to express grief or penitence, or to prepare oneself for prayer or divine revelation, asking God for favor. There's lots of different things. Even in at least one instance, God uh, also commanded fasting as an act of contrition. We read that in the Book of Joel. So numerous other reasons, but only really prescribed once in Leviticus. And we're told that both the Pharisees and John's disciples fast, but the people noticed that Jesus and his disciples were were not. As a matter of fact, they seemed to be living it up, having a great time. Now, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see that this Jesus movement, if we could put it that way, was characterized by celebration rather than somberness. And this is very hard for some people to accept because people are concerned that Jesus and his disciples are not taking their religious observance very seriously. Now, how many of us were, grew up in a church, if you did, that when you walked in, you were supposed to be serious and you can't do anything and you can't run and you need to sit and you need to be quiet? Anybody? Or am I the only one? Yeah? Yeah. And now you come to Seoul and what happens? Kids are running all over the place and it's like total chaos. That's awesome. Because that's family. But there's still a sense of holiness when we gather together. There's a sense of holiness when we worship, when we pray, when we pray for one another. There's a sense of holiness. Even though when we first started this as a church during our coffee break, you don't do coffee in church. Yeah, you do. It's communion. You're with people. Get over this COVID hump and we'll be breaking bread with people once again. It's so important. Yes, there's still an element of holiness to our faith without question, but there is a whole element of party that we're missing out on. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting, but you're not? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They can't. So as long as they have them, but then the time will come and the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they'll fast. Now again, let's look, before we look at Jesus' response to this accusation, I want to think more carefully about something in particular. When you look at the scriptures and the stories of Jesus, and you remember those if you're familiar with them, have you ever noticed how often we're told stories about Jesus sharing meals with people? It's surprising if you take some time to actually think about it. of all the things, out of all the miracles, the teachings, the encounters that Jesus had, the gospel writers selected only that which was most important for telling the story of Jesus. Actually, John tells us that if they wrote down everything that Jesus did, the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. But we're told repeatedly about Jesus sharing meals with sinners and tax collectors, with Pharisees, with women, with Zacchaeus and Lazarus and Martha and Mary, with multitudes, the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. Of course, his final meal, the Last Supper, that he shares with his disciples before his death. And after Jesus is resurrected, twice we are told that he uh, reveals himself to his disciples. How? Through the sharing of a meal with them. And further, think of how this... Often this theme of fasting and banquets and wedding meals and eating comes up with Jesus' teachings and parables. He loved his food. I would think that if he was walking today, he'd probably have a Traeger. (laughs) Now, Now I've caused division in the church. So why the emphasis on food? Why the emphasis on table fellowship? And again... I'd like to think that part of it is is a great deal to do with the cultural connotation at that time of sharing meals together. But I also think that Jesus is picking up an image from the prophets to describe the coming of the new creation and what it will look like. Yeah, the the end times. We read in Isaiah, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces. He will reproach of his people, will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So, what happens when God forgives sin, when he abolishes death, when he wipes away all the tears? Scripture says, people, he throws a party. I love this. And it's not a paper plate, cheap box wine type of party. It's a luxurious, scrumptious feast with the best wine, the best food. And of course, this is what we're told happens in the book of Revelation, right before the dawning of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus hosts the wedding supper of the Lamb. Go to Revelation 19. And so the emphasis of Jesus sharing meals and providing food and teaching about banquets just isn't just a way of inviting people into a circle. It's also a picture. It's also a preview of the messianic banquet that we will enjoy at the end of time. We know as Christians, we say it. Well, actually, we've actually stopped saying it. But the end is near. You might see it in the odd placard if you're walking in L.A. on the street. But the end is near. This is why Jesus, when he's instituting the Lord's Supper with His disciples, he explains to them that he will not enjoy the cup of wine again until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. He's awaiting till that final day when we all gather together round his table when we celebrate the wedding supper of the new creation with him. Heaven's a party. And this is why Jesus' ministry is marked with story after story of meals. This is why Jesus' disciples can't fast while Jesus is with them. Why? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they're not going to fast. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the heavenly, the end times, that messianic banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb has broken now into history. The future has been pulled back into the past with this new age of salvation that has now dawned with the arrival of Jesus. I'm here, but guys, I'm bringing a little bit of the party here so that you get a taste of it. So while I'm here, it's time to celebrate. In John chapter 2, the first miracle that Jesus performs is the turning of the water into wine at what? A wedding, a party. We're told he did this as a sign to manifest his glory. Signs point forward to something. What did this point forward to? It points Jesus's heavenly glory, the glory of a heavenly banquet. This is also why Jesus immediately explains a little parable of a new patch of cloth being sewed and a new wine here. He has come to bring something about a totally new redemptive history, the dawning of the new age of salvation. And now, of course, That banquet, that new heavens and new earth, that feast has not come yet. And Jesus explains that when he says the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. But now we party. So what now is happening here is they stand in this unique and interesting time where the bridegroom has come and they've been united by faith to him and he's promised that he will always be with them and us. I will never leave you. So in one sense, it's party time because Jesus is here with us. But on the other hand, when you think about it, Jesus is not physically here with us. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father and we wait his return. But who has he given us? He has given us himself in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So he is always with us to the very end of the age. So, what do we do? There are actually two takeaways I want you to, to walk out of here with today. Two. First one is fast. Okay? Jesus explained that when he is taken away, his disciples will fast. And, and again, what we have here is Mark recording a collision between the gospel of Jesus and the gospel of the Pharisees. The gospel of the Pharisees doesn't need Jesus, it's a gospel of self reliance it's based on traditionalism, it's based on legalism, and that's exactly what Jesus collides with. Now remember what Mark is doing. Mark is beginning to report the collision that is taking place as Jesus begins to lay out his identity on who he is. He begins to lay out his purpose. We're only in chapter 2, and he begins to lay out his ministry and his call to repentance and faith, which is the gospel of the kingdom. And the Pharisees are following him around, and Mark records these interactions. And so Mark is writing the history in such a way to bring together these important collisions that are taking place between Jesus and the Pharisees. And we are now watching what's going on. And he is not here comforting in the tradition of fasting. In fact, we have Mark, in Mark, a time when Jesus fasted already, it's already recorded, And he's not attacking fasting, really. What he's attacking is the traditionalism of the Pharisees. I often quoted uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, especially when I would do uh, some of our prayer postures, but I, I like what he says here. He says, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And I suppose I should add, it's traditionalism that gives tradition a bad name. Do do you see what he's saying here? We have tradition. We have tradition. We come, we gather together, we sing, we read scripture, we preach. This is tradition that goes back thousands of years. But we also have traditionalism. You must, you need to. This is the only way that God accepts you unless you do this, 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 this. And so you see, for the Pharisees, fasting had nothing to do with God. In fact, Jesus makes an effort to point this out in Matthew chapter 6. It wasn't an act of true faith. For for the Pharisees, it wasn't a humble seeking of God that they fasted. It wasn't that they were broken before God. It was done before men so that they could build up the individual. I do it to build me up. And it was part of that system of the self-reliance. It was part of that self-righteousness. It was part of that pride. And fasting to them, the Pharisees meant to point people to me, to prove to them I'm spiritual and I've arrived. However, real fasting is when I give up the physical food that I would normally enjoy and eat and bring myself broken and needy before God. That's what fasting is. Fasting says... God, you and you alone are my only hope. I, I need to focus on you and not me belly. Right, And so the Pharisees would be taken quite back. They would actually be quite outraged that Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. Their pride, their identity is not rooted in God's work on their behalf, but on their own work on how I can do traditionalism to get closer to God. And then Jesus explains to us that fasting is an expected part of the Christian prayer life. We see that in Matthew 6. Fasting is a prayer that says, God, you're you're more important than this thing I'm abstaining from right now. So what should we be praying for? Because I actually think the context of this verse teaches us to pray. Especially when we look in Revelation 22 and Matthew 6. Where the prayer in Revelation 22 is, come soon Jesus. Come soon. Look at our world and how messed up it is. 21 people getting killed in the States. An invasion, a war, forcing global famine. You don't think we're messed up? Come soon, Jesus. And yet the other prayer of Matthew 6 is let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we sense that this world, that our lives are not as it should be. And we know that when Jesus returns, he will set all wrongs right. So as believers, we have to plead with God to fulfill his promises to come quickly. Jesus adds, no one will sew a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making it tear worse. No one will pour new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. What Jesus is teaching is that the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests represent the old way of doing things. They're the old cloth. They're the old wineskins. In fact, Jesus and his teachings cannot be bottled with the old wineskins. And he's giving us what we would call metaphors of um, compatibility. Jesus is saying your way of thinking about tradition is utterly incompatible with the gospel of kingdom because your way of thinking about those things relies on strictly human effort and human righteousness and human strength and the gospel of the kingdom is is going in a completely different direction and you can't combine the two. You can't layer the gospel over traditionalism because if you do, the gospel will even be destroyed. In other words, the wine is spilled. And so Jesus knows that these seeds of self-congratulation, the seeds of self-reliance that we all carry, the seeds of self-righteousness still live within us. We're, We're all there. And that's why we cannot stop We cannot quit defending the clarity and the defining of the true gospel of Jesus that says you have one hope and one hope alone. And that's trusting in his life, his death, his resurrection, his forgiveness and deliverance and transforming grace. You know what? We thank God for the traditions of our faith, but we don't want traditionalism to replace our trust in Jesus. We thank God for the beauty of the law, but we don't want legalism to replace our trust of Jesus. And that spiritual war is not just a war of theology. It's a war that is fought on the turf of your heart and my heart day after day after day. And so may God protect us by His grace. And so this passage that beautifully depicts for us God's grace and importantly puts in our face this struggle of self-righteousness, which is actually very, very helpful for us. And Mark is presenting Jesus and his message as being one that you can't be neutral towards. I said that when we first looked at this gospel, that Jesus has made these outrageous self-claims and either he is the Son of God who is the Messiah and has the power to forgive sin or he's a horrible blasphemer and so the scribes and the Pharisees begin to follow him and eventually they're going to try to trap him and that this pattern will lead to his trial and ultimately his death but we're to fast there are two takeaways and i want to end on this one because it's very practical and it's my favorite we feast we fast and we feast Now, if you hear about somebody who's fasting as they pray, you probably think, wow, that's a very spiritual person. But when you see somebody throwing a party, chances are you might not think of them the same way. And I'm hoping to maybe shift our perspective some on that today. Did you know that one of the most repeated commands in the New Testament is the command to exercise, not exercise, but even better, exercise hospitality. Do I get an amen? Okay, good. I hope we're gonna get some practical application out of this one. The pastor likes his exercise. No, exercise hospitality. You know what I've r- recognized in our culture? And and part of this is COVID, but e- even pre-COVID we've noticed it. I grew up in a family that the house is always open. We have tried to always practice having people in our house. It's hospitality. It's who we are. So actually it's a calling of an elder I'll get to in a moment. But what we're finding now, it, it stuck out to us. I, James and I were in, in the Ukraine and We were told we're going out for supper, and five hours later in the same restaurant and food after food after food, James looks at me and goes, Dad, we've been here for five hours. I can't eat anymore. And he goes, why don't we just go to somebody's house? And of course, one of our hosts heard that, and he turned around, he looked at James. His name was Oleg, go figure. Um, And he goes, because our houses are too small, there would be no place for anybody to sit. So we go to a restaurant, and we spend hours in the restaurant. But that was their hospitality. It's still their hospitality today. But the shift that's taken place in our culture is that we are so adverse to bringing people into our home. So we may take them to a restaurant. And if we do, we go Mennonite, right? Dutch. Dutch Mennonite. There's something spiritual about bringing people into our homes having coffee. I remember my mom would put sugar, butter, and cinnamon on toast and feed it to our guests because we had nothing else in the house. Anybody ever have that kind of mixture? Yeah? It didn't have to be a big spread. It just had to be people having a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, being with each other, laughing, with, uh, crying with each other. You know, if we see somebody throwing a party now, chances are we don't think they're all too holy, right? And yet, and yet, the New Testament's command is that we are to exercise hospitality, and it's so important. It's actually something, I'm convinced of this, it's something that defines a Christian. So much so that if you are an elder in the church... Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-control, respectable... Hospitable, able to teach. Again, I would not be qualified to serve as one of our pastors if my family and I were not hospitable. I love what 1 Peter wrote. We looked at this before. At the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, loving, some, uh, loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another, with the best part, without grumbling. Oh, I hate that they're coming over. <laughs> Do you see what it means to be a believer? To invite people into our homes? Yeah, okay, you don't want to bring them in your homes. I get it, they're allergic to cats and dogs. I get it, and you're a crazy cat lady or a crazy dog lover. I get it, but be hospitable in the way that you can. In the way that you can. Right? Look at the world we live in. Look at this crazy world. And again, I come back, the, the end is near, right? The end is near, so what do we do? You ever see the movie, uh, the Netflix movie, Don't Look Up? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, what was the final scene? Do you remember? Because you watch too many movies. Okay, the final scenes are all sitting around a table. What are they doing around the table? They're eating. Why are they eating around a table? They're about to die. It's a great movie. (laughs) It ends with death. Death by eating, basically. Well, actually, nuclear destruction. But death by eating... It's, it's a great concept. Here they are, the folks are sitting around. The end is near. They invite people over and they cook a meal. The book of Revelation tells us, upon the arrival of a new creation, dinner will be provided. You won't need to bring your own. Isn't that awesome? A wedding party. And so one of the best ways that we can learn from Jesus to display the kingdom of God here on earth is by hosting meals here and now, by anticipating the heavenly banquet that is to come. My hope and prayer is that as you walk out of here today is that you will see the importance of hospitality. Yes, we're about eating. We're about bringing people over. It can literally display a preview of heaven on earth with your kitchen table. You want to show what Jesus, the world what Jesus is like? Break some bread, clean the house, go over and invite your neighbors over. If you don't want to bake bread, do skip or something else. Either way, you can make it work. Do you want the church to grow in health and love and discipleship? Invite another person or another family over for lunch that you don't know at all. Oh, that's risky. Yeah. Yeah. You may never have them back again, but that's okay. You did it at least once. Or you may have your best friends ever. Don't underestimate this. When somebody in our community gets sick, has a baby or a death in the family, we organize a meal train. You cook a casserole, you bring it over, whatever it is. You know, I've gone to Sobeys and bought already pre-cooked stuff and dropped it off for people. You know, this isn't some minor spiritual gift. When we do stuff like this, we're creating a little pocket of God's kingdom here on earth with the love of a home-cooked meal. And for those who feel like they're not doing anything significant for the kingdom, because maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, know that every night that you put a meal on the table for your family, you're showing the love of God and the joys of heaven to your family. So soul, (laughs) what's your plan for hospitality? Maybe today during lunch or this week in your life groups, it'd be good to discuss this. How many people do you want to have over this month? Who from Seoul have you not had over before? Which neighbors have you not had in your home? Maybe you're thinking, I hate cooking, I hate cleaning, I don't like having people over in my home, I'm an introvert, I like my privacy. That's all right. If you know somebody in our community who excels at hospitality, go out of your way to ask them to come and clean your house and the duck for you and pay them well. I want to encourage you all to step out. We walk in at coffee. Sorry, sorry Jordan, this thing was going through my mind. I, was, I wanted to scream at you didn't. but it's so important when we dismiss people for coffee that there's a little tagline that we don't always say because sometimes it's, it's presumed. And that tagline is, talk to somebody you don't know. That's the first stage of hospitality. Talk to somebody you know. So as, as I'm gonna share, as a lead pastor, for things that break my heart. Somebody goes, they're new to our community, they grab a cup of coffee, they grab a cup of tea, and they stand there like this, and nobody talks to them. Drives me over the wall. And, and my, my self-righteous kicks in where I feel I have to step up for everybody else. And that's really hard for me because I, I realize that while he's a pastor, he's paid to talk to people. <laughs> There's something about hospitality. There's something about warmth and friendliness. Yes, yeah, sometimes people want to come to a bigger church because it's easier for them to hide. That's not soul. That's not soul. Step out of your comfort zone. Introduce yourself to people at coffee. Invite somebody to do lunch. It doesn't need to be a big spread. It could be toast with cinnamon and sugar and butter. Try it. You may like it. It's great for cavities. Dentists love it. But that is really the hospitality of the kingdom. This is what Jesus lives out for us. And can I say it's biblical it's the way of Jesus and maybe we don't have much time left on this broken planet so then let's make the effort to practice what Jesus modeled and to eat and to party with those who need encouragement and who also need the hope of the gospel of Jesus I never take anything for granted, but before we pray, maybe you're not a believer here today and you have assumed that because of your past or because of what you've done or what you've been or what's been done to you, that you wouldn't be welcome to Jesus' table. I want to ask you to reconsider that there is nothing that will disqualify you from coming to Jesus today. And that the only thing that will keep you from sharing in this good news is your refusal to come to him. So if you want to know more about what that looks like, maybe ask the friend that invited you to come today or come and talk to one of our pastors. You can email us. You can call us. Um, Come talk to me after the gathering. Contact us online. But We'll take our time to talk, to answer your questions to the best of our ability and to pray with you. So I can invite you all to stand. I'd like you all to turn around, look around. (laughs) Ask yourself, who are you going to invite over? (laughs) Look across the room. Don't look at me. Look at the body. Look at people. Oh, yeah, you guys are so uncomfortable. This is awesome. (laughs) He's making us look. Did you see that? He's making us look at people. And some of you are looking right over everybody's heads. You're not even looking people in the eyes you are going to go, if I look them in the eyes, I'm going to have to invite them. Yes, you will. Who are you going to have over? Who are you going to have over for lunch? Who are you going to have over for coffee? Take them to 7-Eleven. I hear it's cheap. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, we confess our utter need of your grace and that we have nothing in ourselves that could achieve acceptance with you. And we have no ability to move forward towards you and no ability to live in a way that would please you. And our only hope is your grace. And yet having said that, we would confess also that self-righteousness is still a clear and present danger in our lives. And we don't think that we're bad company. We we think that we'd be good company for you. But rescue us, God, from that self-righteousness that crushes a seeking and celebration of grace and it crushes gospel ministry hospitable God you invite us into a banquet where the last will be first and the humble will take the mighty places may we share your abundance with no fear of scarcity let us greet strangers as angels that you have sent so send your spirit now so that we may find a place at your table and welcome others with radical hospitality thank you that you are our hope that you are our righteousness, that you are our forgiveness, that you are our life. Draw our hearts ever close to you. May we abandon our self-righteousness and rest in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Just before the blessing, you may or may not have heard, Cliff Dirksen has passed away. Cliff uh, was a uh, steering committee member here at our church in, in Wilma. Uh, for quite some time, and then when Cyrus went to plant the church, they went to join him. He passed away. The funeral will be here on Saturday at 10.30. If you want to come, you're invited um, to show support to the family and everyone else in that way. If you have a gift of hospitality, we're looking for a couple of people who would be willing to uh, serve uh, in the... um, Kitchen as uh, caterers are coming into food, so it's basically providing tea and coffee and Helping with the trays of food that are going to be piped in Did you get a team for? We don't know okay, so now we know we also need some of our tech team people if you're available on Saturday if you could talk to Steph That would be oh talk to Allison my bad Uh, (laughs) That's pretty good deflection Uh, Talk to Allison, as we'll need uh, some support and help in that way, too. So, are you ready for some hospitality? In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving blessing did likewise. Before we start, Chair, Soul Sanctuary, as you leave this place to go out into the world, may you practice hospitality among our own church family and your neighbors. May you show compassion to each other and within broken people to be especially gracious with them and help carry each other's burdens. May you show works of mercy to our community through your presence and your prayer. And may you pray for justice in this world, remembering and grieving along with those suffering from violence, from hunger, illness, poverty, racism, war, and despair around this globe. Now may the word of Jesus guide you. May the light of his spirit bless the work you do with the love and warmth of his heart. Now be blessed and go and live the church and invite somebody out for lunch. Amen.